Hello again, and welcome to the latest episode of our quarterly Board Dialogue with Ken Kaufman feature to our regular Governing Health podcast series. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're glad to have you with us. Over the last month or two, Ken has been out on the road visiting with clients and other leaders of the healthcare industry, getting a sense of their expectations, concerns, and near-term agenda. He's also been busy with his very popular blog addressing key issues that range from inflation to artificial intelligence and to the final four. So in this episode, we've asked Ken to consider these diverse issues he's been considering, as well as the conversations he's been having and share with us his thoughts. For more than 40 years, Ken Kaufman has been one of the leading thinkers on healthcare strategy and finance. He is the chair of Kaufman Hall, a management consulting firm that he founded in 1985. Ken has helped healthcare organizations of all sizes with their most critical strategic challenges. He's also the author of seven books and hundreds of articles, and he's delivered more than 400 speeches, most recently focusing on healthcare's changing business model. In 2019, he received the Richard L. Clark Board of Directors Award from the Healthcare Financial Management Association for lifetime contribution to healthcare, the only consultant ever to be given this award. Ken, we're just delighted to have you back on the program. And I know you've been traveling around the country. You're back on the road again, and you've been visiting with a lot of clients. And we're really interested today to get a sense of what you're hearing and what you've been picking up as you've been on this Grand uh, Grand Tour first quarter, and I'd like to start with something that, you know, I frankly I had forgotten about. But we're approaching the two year anniversary of the George Floyd murder, and I know that one outgrowth of that terrible event has been extraordinary attention to diversity at the leadership and board levels of all industries. We we see that in our clients. What is your take visiting with clients right now about progress in that area? What are you seeing? Because, and I guess this is the backdrop, and we can come back to this. Right now, we've got the, the California diversity statutes under fire. So I'm very interested in your perspective on the initiatives that are coming from boards right now. Well, I think everybody is it's hard to get a measure of what kind of success we've had in that area. You know, there, there, when it, when it comes to, to social justice, I think from a healthcare perspective, you know, social justice has fallen into three categories. The first category of course is, is patient equity, trying to find a way to deliver the same level and the same kind of healthcare to all patients, even patients from marginalized communities. Secondly, we have income inequity, and, and I think healthcare organizations are finding that they have to play a pretty important role there. And then the third, of course, is organizational diversity. It's, it, it, some commentators have noted that it's probably not possible to solve the patient equity issue if your organization is also not diverse. In other words, they're not separate silos, but but they're probably all in the same problem. And I think the prediction is that the organizations that find their way to diversity inside the organization will have the best and highest probability of solving the patient equity problem. So the question then becomes, how is this proceeding? And, and there's, I've noticed that there's 
two different observations here. There, there is the structural process, which everybody says is really important, and that is that you can't solve employment diversity inside your organization without a structural solution. The problem is that in many cases, the structural solutions don't actually appear to be working. And if they are working, they move very slowly. And because the whole way that we've established our hiring and recruiting processes across American organizations, including healthcare, it's just very hard to undo the problem in those hiring processes. So I've been really taken with the examples of individual action. And I'm beginning to think that individual action could be more important than than structural change. And the the metaphor, Michael, that popped up on this recently that just was remarkable was uh, the fact that Bruce Arians, who is the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and who had coached them to a Super Bowl championship just two years ago, and Tom Brady had actually decided to retire and then unretire and come back. And a lot of NFL observers thought that the Buccaneers definitely had one of the teams next year that could win the Super Bowl. And then suddenly and inexplicably, Bruce Arians retired as head coach, but he didn't just retire. He retired and then announced that he had appointed Todd Bowles, his defensive coordinator, as the new head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And what was significant about that is Todd Bowles is African-American. And everybody knows that the NFL has had the Rooney rule for years and years, which was supposed to encourage NFL teams to do a much better job of bringing diversity and African-American coaches into their coaching staff and especially getting African-American coaches to the head coach position. And everybody also knows that the Rooney Rule has failed miserably. The NFL has been extraordinarily criticized and the NFL has supposedly, you know, gone back into their deep dark hole to figure out what to do with this. And then along comes a guy like Bruce Arians, and he says, you know, you know, I'm not waiting for the Rooney rule. I'm not waiting for the NFL. It's incredibly important that Todd Bowles is the head coach, next head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And it's extremely important that Todd Bowles will be an African-American coach in the NFL. And so I'm putting any self-interest aside as far as I'm concerned, and I'm making this move right now. And that has to be an absolutely remarkable lesson for leaders across all of corporate America, and especially healthcare, that that the ability to bring diversity into the healthcare CEO suite, and not only bring it into the suite, but advance it forward so that there are more candidates of color available to take over the CEO slot you can see how important it is that the individual decisions that are made by some very important person within the healthcare organization, whether that turns out to be the CEO or some very prominent board member who pushes this, you know, and then Arians made one other comment that was especially remarkable. So people said, well, why now? 
And Arians commented, he said, well, the structural racism in the NFL is remarkable. African-American coaches, they, they tend to get hired onto teams that aren't very good. And, and then when those teams don't do well, they get fired. And then when they get fired, they don't get an opportunity for another job. And this is actually can be statistically demonstrated. Whereas white coaches that have bad teams and get fired, those white coaches often then get hired again to be CEO. And Arian said, I was very conscious of this structural racist situation within the NFL. And I not only wanted Todd to have an opportunity to be a head coach, but I wanted him to have the opportunity to be the head coach of a good and competent team that we've created here in Tampa Bay. So I, I think that is a story that everybody who is listening to us across a healthcare land can really learn from in terms of how to solve this problem. Can I two questions in that regard? One, do you foresee a situation where there is uh, will be a reluctance uh, amongst healthcare boards to move further on this, where the concept of individual initiative will fall on deaf ears, given the number of other issues, extraordinary number of other issues they have? And kind of a related point, and going back to my point, we're, we're going to be in a situation right now, at least as of today, where one of the two California diversity statutes was ruled unconstitutional on equal protection grounds by the Los Angeles Superior Court. We don't know right yet whether that case will be appealed, and we don't know the future of the other diversity statute, the one that was gender-related, the decision that was struck down was the statute relating to underrepresented communities. Are you worried that the boards will not have an appetite or feel that they have the room or the capacity or the willingness to address diversity issues amidst the issues that they're dealing with? And as part of that, are you concerned that decisions like the California one may embolden those who are opposed to further diversity initiatives. And maybe we start with this, that first. Well, I'm sure decisions like that will embolden those sectors of our society who oppose this. However, I, I would be surprised to, to see these d diversity within the workplace. That would be slowed down appreciably. You know, certainly in my business interactions, this just continues to come up all the time. And I don't know whether you're seeing it from McDermott Will perspective, but we're seeing it from a Kaufman Hall perspective, is that we now receive occasional requests for proposals and some of the questions inside the request for proposals that the prospective client wants to hear what efforts we're making to diversify our consulting team, what successes we've already had in that regard. So I think everybody's kind of on notice that this isn't just, you know, from a business perspective, this isn't just a nice to have, it's going to be a must have. And, wow. and, and so, you know, this is, it, it, it's right there. It's an issue that we're working very hard on within our organization. And I expect it to continue to move forward with, with great effort and great momentum.
And I would make a prediction that over the next 10 years, we're going to see an increasing number of female and individuals of color moving to the CEO positions in hospitals across the United States. Well, but before we leave this question, I want to stick with the NFL analogy. And you had mentioned the Rooney Rule. I I think that there were those within the NFL who thought the Rooney Rule was certainly uh, well-intentioned, but they thought that works. It's a great idea. And it's and we check that box. Are, are, are you, is the, is the now rather clear failure of the Rooney rule and the, the Brian Flores litigation, is that a signal to healthcare boards to say, you may not, you may think you've checked the box. You may think you've done enough here, but you probably haven't to go back for boards and, and reevaluate the sufficiency of their diversity initiatives. Yeah, no, I I think the way you just articulated it is absolutely right. And I think your assessment of the Rooney Rule is right on point. Isn't it it remarkable that that at the time, everybody thought the Rooney Rule was a great step forward. But what it wound up doing was relieving the pressure on organizations to actually do anything about the problem because because instead of solving the problem, they were abiding by the Rooney rule. I mean, isn't that that kind of, I mean, the highest of ironies? Well, and, it, and that's like, like I don't actually have to hire an African-American head coach because I abided by the Rooney rule. And, and that, that's, of course, the challenge that comes out. If state mandates prove to be unconstitutional, we're going to need to find other initiatives. Boards can't sit back and say, well, I'm doing it. I'm complying with the statute and therefore I'm fine. The statute goes away. It, fall, it goes back to your point. It falls upon the board and the and management to have the initiative to move forward with diversity on their own, without the safety net, so to speak, of a state. No, no, nothing is going to substitute for organizational values. I never thought I would say that because I don't think that's been really consistent with my political outlook over a very long period of time for my life. But, but. You, you know, I mean, I mean, everybody who's worked with with healthcare organization knows that after you've worked with them for a while, you can really feel and understand and touch what their values are. And when you have those particular values in place, then they tend to act on those values, and you see it reflected in the decisions that they make in the boardroom and who they promote and and, and who they try to recruit. Well, let's stick with that theme, and but kind of shift it a little bit, pivot a little bit, because when I'm talking with client boards and, and their leadership, a key issue uh, that keeps coming back again and again is the workforce culture issue. And it's not really the question about workforce safety as it was last year, but it's more workforce culture. And I think particularly recruiting and retaining nurses and the recent Tennessee decision only made that worse. I, I'm sure you're seeing and hearing the same thing from your clients, but how are you working and how is Kaufman Hall working with your healthcare clients on this work for culture issue? Yeah, so this is, you are 100% correct. This is all anybody wants to talk about right now. And of course, you know, I mean, why would anybody want to talk about anything else when there are two forces working here, both of them pernicious and neither of them helpful to the long-term interests of, of our industry. The first is there's just not enough people to work in the hospital business. And as there is, many organizations are not able to deliver the total level of care that they want to because 
because they can't hire enough people. And the second issue, of course, is that in order to get those people into your organization, you have to pay so much more right now that it has had an, an, an extraordinary impact on the total expense budgets of many hospital organizations, and which is which has led to some significant financial distress across the country. So our perspective, we've been working on this really hard. We've been researching this and, you know, we're getting to the point where I think we've, we've put, put together sort of a packet of, of information that, that begins to put a better understanding around the whole problem. Our first observation is that this is a permanent problem and all of our listeners need to understand this. This is a temporary dislocation and that if the pandemic goes away, essentially over the next year or two, that this problem will go away. We definitely have developed a a permanent workforce problem in the healthcare sector. So, you know, in, in April of 2020, 5 million Americans left the workforce. Between May and September of 2021, 20 million Americans voluntarily left their jobs. Very importantly for healthcare organizations, 1.4 million mothers with school-aged children decided to leave the workforce during the pandemic. And of course, since healthcare employs more women than probably almost all other verticals, this has had a very significant impact on hospital employment. And now the percentage of women in the workforce is lower than it's been in the last 30 years, which is a very strange phenomenon given how hard everybody's worked on that over over the years. So, so, so then what's happened is that hospital labor costs have, have gone up. In in February, the labor costs were 15% higher year over year than 2020 and 32% higher than 2021. And so, so you know, this, this has introduced a fundamental operating problem into the industry. And, and then, as I'm sure you're hinting at, Michael, you know, contract labor has has turned out to be the the big bugaboo of all this. So so two things influence contract labor. First, a lot of nurses and other employees, you know, wanted to be hired on a contract basis. And secondly, hospitals had to use contract organizations just to find people. And so as a result, contract labor has actually increased 120 172% 172% since 2019, which is an, an absolutely extraordinary situation. And then the labor rates on the contract side, which is driving expenses up. So nurse wage rates have in the hospital have generally gone from about $35 an hour to $40 an hour. But contract labor rates over the same period of time have gone from $65 to $139 an hour. So basically, all of this is a fundamental operating change to the industry that that everybody's still trying to figure out, you know, what are the operating options and alternatives here to figuring out how to solve this problem? And I think if we had six or seven CEOs on a panel here with us, they would tell us that. Ken, let me pick up on your observation. You know, it's now well-established that oversight of workforce culture is absolutely a board obligation. 
in your visits with your board clients, do you see that recognized or accepted, or do we still have a ways to go in terms of the board realizing that this is their responsibility ultimately? I don't know. If the, I, I think there's absolute recognition of the problem at the board level. I don't. I think you know all serious board members get this, whether they accept this as, as their problem. I think they're still basically delegating this problem to their chief executive officer and and waiting for the CEO to come back with solutions and reorganizations and other ideas and options about how to solve this. But I think it's pretty accurate to say that most boards see this, that, that they're very important partners in figuring out how to solve this. A lot a lot of the solutions that will eventually be required are definitely things that have to be approved by the board. They're not decisions, operating decisions that management can make all on their own. If you're going to move your, your lower level employees from a, an hourly wage, minimum wage of $15 to $18, and you see that as a very important part of the workforce solution from a retention and recruitment perspective, management can make that suggestion. But it, in, I think in almost every organization I've ever consulted to, the board would have to approve that change. Well, let me push you a little bit further along the spectrum on a question that's popped up in the last couple of days. And I think we could have seen it coming, but it's a kind of a, a confluence of your first point on diversity and the second point on workforce culture, and that is the broader pressure on boards to address social justice issues of interest to their workforce, especially the millennial portions of their workforce. I'd like your comment on that, especially in the context of looming judicial decisions on abortion rights, as we're starting to see companies make decisions to support the interests of their employees in obtaining access to abortions, especially if the companies are located in states where it's being legislated against. An extraordinary sensitive topic. How do healthcare boards deal with that? Well, it's the Wild West out there, right? I mean, it's absolutely the Wild West. And I don't know how healthcare boards are going to decide to, to deal with this, you know, you know, healthcare boards are, are in a different situation than than non-healthcare boards because they're actually clinically delivering organizations and and they have to abide by the law in what services they deliver and what services they don't deliver. And so I think you've generally seen as this situation has developed that 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 healthcare organizations have attempted to be pretty quiet about this and just see how these things move along and especially see how important court cases are likely to work out over over the next year the as you you know i mean i mean the two the two metaphors that are most powerful and relative to your question of course is the first is the remarkable conflict that's developed between the governor of Florida and the Walt Disney Corporation around the don't say gay law where where Disney at first and this is a you know the absolute probably closest observation to your question and comment is that law proceeded along and 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 Disney decided basically to take no position on it 
and the Disney employees went absolutely crazy. They organized, they had walkout, and they let the Disney board and Disney management know that that it was absolutely unacceptable to them as the Disney workforce for Disney to take no position on this. And as a result, the Disney Corporation reversed themselves and opposed the don't say gay law. And then that caused Governor DeSantis to decide to take on the Walt Disney Corporation directly and create a culture war around that, despite the fact that the Walt Disney Company is the largest employer in in Florida. So there really isn't, there's no better story or metaphor for this whole situation than, than how this is whole developed. And then, of course, that now crosses over into the abortion issue, uh, where the state of Texas took the lead to make it almost impossible uh, for women in Texas to gain abortions in Texas, at which point the a Citibank and Yelp announced in the last week that they will provide benefits to their women workforce in Texas who need to leave the state in order to get abortions. And that has set off a a whole new round of of what this all means and how companies are likely to react to these situations. You know, honestly, Michael, we've never seen anything like this before ever, have we? I mean, when you think about work relationship of companies to government and workforce to government, it, it was always, you know, like, well, we'll try to do the right thing, but we'll be incredibly careful. And sometimes we'll be so careful, it won't even be possible to tell that we've done the right thing. The overall corporate relationship and government relationship is so polarized that walking that fine line is no longer possible. And do you see a situation where healthcare individuals on the boards and people considering joining the board are saying, Look, the social justice, that's great. We're all in favor of it, but we're in the healthcare business and we need to stay away from that issue. It's distracting. It's not our primary uh, line of operation. And we don't have the bandwidth as a board, nor should we, to have to uh, address these issues. Is that a, is that something that you're seeing? And if so, is it a sustainable policy at a board level? I haven't. I can't say that I've seen it yet, but I would speculate that you're that you're a hundred percent right. That that there have been you know executive session discussions inside a lot of boardrooms, and 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 the outcome of those executive sessions have been, let's be really careful here. Let's let's not be leaders. These are issues around. You know, we, we definitely are trying to make an impression in social justice, but. But we didn't see social justice being defined in this way. And we have to worry about, you know, the overall safety and success of the organization. And and so we've got to be very careful. I, I would I would be shocked if there weren't more than a handful of healthcare boards who are trying to land on that spot on the monopoly board. Will their employees let them stay that way? You know, you haven't seen healthcare employees be as aggressive as you've seen corporate employees. You just haven't seen that in in many of our major, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. Employees and shareholders have been very aggressive. I have not had any client 
call me or point out that they've had issues in this regard. Now, hospitals who are unionized, that may turn out to be a a different thing, right? I mean, if you have an SEIU union and this kind of question comes up, I would be shocked if the SEIU and their representative employees didn't jump into the breach. Well, let's kind of shift uh, because I want to ask you a question before we leave today about classify this as an economic justice question, and that's the impact uh, of inflation and now an 8.5% inflation rate on hospitals and healthcare institutions and their boards. How are you seeing the inflation rate affecting your clients? I know there's been a lot of discussion in the papers that this the inflation rate may be peaking. How do you anticipate, how do you see the threat right now of increased inflation? Well, what the first thing we've noticed is that the hospital sector has probably been hit by inflation worse than any of the other sectors. So not only are you getting generalized inflation, but you're getting the specific inflation of the industry. And that inflation of the industry has really fallen into two categories. One, of course, is the workforce, which we've already talked about. And wage rates in, in, in the hospital sector have gone up much faster than they've gone up in other areas of the economy. And, and then secondly, issues such as supply chain and all of that have contributed significantly to increasing expenses with, within hospital operation. So healthcare organizations have have been really forced to come to grips and have a better understanding of the inflationary cycle right now and to really think what that's going to mean from a budgetary point of view and you know how it's going to impact profitability going forward which then impacts uh, capital capacity, which then inf- impacts capital spending. So it's it's a whole set of dominoes that trickles down from an operating position for most hospital organizations. Our point of our suggestion has been is that that hospitals just can't look at this from the outside. They've really got to think hard, almost economically, which is a way I think that many healthcare organizations have traditionally not thought. And you're going to have a point of view on what this inflation cycle looks like. So, you know, is it, as you pointed out, you know, have we hit the peak and is this a temporary cycle? And now we're going to, to, to this is the inflationary cycle is going to, to begin to ease off. Or are we in a long-term inflationary cycle that's more similar to the late 70s and early 80s, where interest rates just kept going up and up, and we wound up in a very serious recession because of what the Fed had to do to bring inflation under control? In the hospital boardroom, this should be a topic of discussion, and you should be coming to some conclusions about what you believe, because it will impact uh, very important balance sheet decisions that the hospital makes. For example, if you think that we're in a long-term inflationary cycle and you needed to issue $300 million of debt, then you should be going out and issuing that debt tomorrow. On the other hand, if you think we're not in a long-term inflationary cycle and you need to issue $300 million worth of debt, then you may be able to be more patient about when you come to market with that. And of course, also impacts the very debt structures that, that you decide on based on what you think interest rates are going to look like going forward based on the inflationary cycle. These are incredibly important decisions 
that and and they involve a lot of money going forward in terms of you know how much money you're going to pay for your long-term debt and and how that's going to to impact many other balance sheet decisions that the board is responsible for overseeing. Well, Ken, I do want you to know that I still have my uh, whip inflation now button that I got from working on the Jerry Ford campaign, and that's one of my most precious possessions. So I'm going to start wearing that to the boardroom going forward. You know, Ken, we so value your comments here, and I think it's interesting as we wrap up our conversation that on this latest of our many podcast conversations with you, We've really avoided talking about regulatory matters, patient care and safety matters, and growth matters. And I think it says quite a bit about what's on the board agenda that we are now dealing with the uh, the issue, maybe the soft tissue issues that are affecting healthcare boards right now. And I would encourage our listeners as they consider your comments today to take that into consideration. It seems to me the big picture message is boards are having to take on a whole new level of issues beyond those that they may have anticipated when they signed on as directors. Is that a fair statement? I think being a board member is just, and you're really the expert on this, is it's you have to assume if you're on a board or you're asked to be on a board that A, the time commitment is going to be massively different than you ever expected and that you're going to have to face up to some issues and cast some votes that, you know, that many board members might have said, well, you know, you know, this is, you know, I'm just glad to be on this board. And, you know, I get to hang out with a bunch of the guys that I play golf with at the country club. And isn't this kind of a nice thing? And we go away for a retreat every year and enjoy each other's company. And, and all of a sudden, you're casting votes that are likely to be, you know, on the front page of your local paper on the TV news. And everybody may not appreciate that. Everybody might, you know, there might be quite a few board members out there who are saying, you know, this is definitely not the cruise that I signed on for. Michael, now we, we get to the favorite part, my favorite part of our regular podcast. And that's where I get to ask you a few questions. And so the question that I really wanted to focus on is given our conversation about the Walt Disney Company and given our conversation about the Texas abortion environment, your practice must be getting more interesting by the moment. And so what governance topics are you now advising your clients to be on the lookout for? You know, you know, where are you what are you telling the boards and the chief legal officers that you work with that boards really need to be more focused on as we move through 2022? You know, Ken, it's a great question. And I would probably divide it up into three issues, but it's a I want to pick up on what you just commented on. I think one of the lines of interest and conversation we're having is on the whole question of director engagement and preparedness. And you really hit the nail on the head. This is a message that comes somewhat difficultly to boards and it has the potential for affecting the board management relationship, but it's essentially the law is absolutely expecting directors to work harder, faster, longer. And and I think we're seeing also an expectation that the boards are more prepared to be true partners with management, to be a resource to management as management struggles with these difficult problems. 
And we see that being manifested in a couple of ways, one of which is an understanding that, you know, the days of sitting on three, four or five boards are probably at an end. My personal view is that if you are going to be a board member of a major healthcare organization, that's just about it. That's going to take up more of your time. And if you think you can juggle two or three other corporate boards on top of that, you may want to reconsider. And at the same time, in terms of your preparation, recognize that for all the reasons you just mentioned, your CEO is going to want you to be up to speed. So when he or she asks you for advice, again, as a business partner, you're able to do it. Another thing that we're seeing, and it's is, and the headlines are helping, is a recognition that under the Biden administration, we really do, the pendulum on government enforcement of healthcare laws and uh, has really swung back as one might have expected and even gone a little further. There are interesting conversations we are having with executives and boards just about the whole antitrust enforcement era, which is a difficult message to send in terms of merger enforcement and now interlocking board enforcement and how that affects the system's growth. And we're also having that conversation we had four or five years ago about individual accountability and more aggressive enforcement of corporate fraud statutes. That's a difficult conversation. One other thing, kind of just to wrap up and circle back to the conversation that you started us off on is we're also seeing that some of the board members who are also have roles in public companies are recognizing that there are lessons to be learned from the current proxy season and the shareholder proposals that are being presented to major corporations. And, you know, we're all reading about them. Some of them have to do with, many of them have to do with social justice issues. And I think that there is a recognition that the of a link between what some of these shareholder proposals are suggesting as key areas not just for gadflies and not just for activist investors, but also for mainstream investors, and that these proposals might be flagging for us issues that come to healthcare boards within a a year or so. So I think those are three different disparate messages. And what I'd love to do is have you come back at the end of the second quarter, and we'll see whether our prognostications are are on point or not. I suspect yours much more accurate than mine, but we'll look forward to having you back. It goes without saying that we are, it's always a privilege to have Ken Kaufman on our podcast. It's been a extraordinarily popular presentation for our Governing Health podcast over the last number of years. And I personally learned so much from it. So Ken, thanks a million for coming by and we'll look forward to seeing you again at the end of the second quarter. Michael, thank you very much for for having me on. This is always just a a highlight. These conversations are, are, I think, are just great. I really am delighted to be challenged by the quality of your questions. I just want to let you know that I did run into a hospital CEO who told me that he listens to our podcast regularly. So I just wanted to let you know that there's at least one person out there who's listening to Michael and Ken. You talked to my mom, did you? Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Ken Kaufman has shared with us an important perspective that the key issues that should be receiving board attention in the near term have much less to do with traditional operational issues and much more to do with social and economic issues of concern to the workforce and the mission. With these points, he underscores the evolving and growing role of the healthcare director and the challenges and opportunities board service offers. 
For some directors, it might not be what they envisioned when they agreed to join the board, but for others, it may be every bit the challenge they hoped it would be. Thanks again for joining us for today's episode of Quarterly Dialogue with Ken Kaufman. We hope you'll join us again for future episodes and for our regular Governing Health podcasts. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks so much for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, distribution or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.